It's delicate. It's unforgiving. And when you cook a perfect piece of fish, it's one of the best things on earth. I put that down to Stephen Hodges. You know, his teaching for me of how to cook seafood. You know, there's nothing better than eating raw, perfect, aged fish. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The last two years have shone a light on how the restaurant model works. The notion that large venues with many seats being turned over a few times a night seems old hat and a swathe of new operators have been launching into small boutique offerings, minimising food costs, staff costs and the high rents, the trilogy of pain points for the industry. In that vein, small Japanese restaurants have flourished as our appetite for cuisine from the land of the rising sun develops too. Joel Best is the co-owner of Besto, soon to be opened in Sydney. Joel, how are you? Mate, thanks for having me on board. <laughs> it's good to uh, catch up with you. You've had quite an interesting couple of years. Um, you you sold a business a couple of years ago and uh, avoided a lot of the chaos that a lot of operators have, have had, and yet you're launching a restaurant still amid um, COVID. But what's it been like for you the last couple of years? I'm grateful would be a uh, word that I, I go back to quite often. I'm very grateful that I sold my places at the beginning of 2019 um, and missed the shit show of coronavirus and the floods and the fires that people often forget about um, that were just before COVID hit. Um, so for myself, it was a chance to recharge. You know, I played a lot of golf. I taught myself some golf, played a lot of golf. And um, then, you know, this is, this little project is... You know, more a passion project. I don't need to do it. It's something that, um, you know, excites me and it's something that I want to eat as well. So, you know, reflecting on the last couple of years is, yeah, I'm grateful. It's, it's one word that just comes back to mind all the time. I want to get into the new uh, venue that will open soon in a little while. Um, t- take us back to when you were young. When, when did you first get interested in food and, and realise that chefing might be for you? comes back to helping my mum in the kitchen. So I'm the youngest boy of four boys. So there's, you know, there's three brothers. I'm the youngest. And growing up in a single parent household, like you know, everyone had to chip in. So I always found myself in the kitchen, helping my mum out, prepare the meals. And I, you know, it comes back to that. And growing up with a, you know, being the youngest, and you know, all, all boys were brought home by the police at one stage in their teenage years. Um, you know, the kitchen was a safe place um, or used to be a safe place. And when I was growing up, it was a safe place. And, you know, when my brother, brothers were beating, beating me up, I'd run to the kitchen. That's where I'd run for protection when I was young. You know, run, run to mum for protection. And when I was older, I'd run to the kitchen to pick up the knife. And I, and I was actually banned from using any chef's knife in my household from about the age of eight to 14. So it's um, quite interesting that I became a chef and, you know, the chaos in the kitchen that all kitchens are chaotic or used to be, um, you know, that was quite familiar for me. And, yeah, so it comes back to, I think, helping my mum out of the kitchen. 
Do you remember when you first stepped foot in a commercial kitchen and, and how different that was? Well, I started working in a, in a deli, in a gourmet deli out at Dural when I was 14. And um, that was great training. Like, you know, everything was done properly. All the sauces, everything was followed. All the recipes were followed to a T. And the owner guy, Nusifora, you know, Italian bloke, very hard and, and particular on the way things were done. And, you know, all through my training and, you know, whether we go from there, I went to Pier and trained under Greg Doyle and Steve Hodges, um, who were both, you know, quite notorious for ripping people's heads off for no particular reason. Um, but they were very particular. And Steve Hodges was an amazing mentor in the kitchen. Um, and he was also an amazing mentor to me, both in my personal life, but the training that I was given between those two venues and completely different venues, one being a deli and one being a you know, two-hat, three-hat restaurant. Um, but I'm grateful for the experience that I received from both those restaurants and both those venues. Take us back to the kitchen at Pier uh, with Greg Doyle and, and Steve Hodges. Um, what, what did you take from that time? What was some of the positives that, as a chef that you took out of that? Oh, the love of seafood. I mean, the, the just the love and desire to produce good seafood dishes. I mean, my first day in the kitchen, Greg tore my head off because I didn't know what wasabi was. Um, I didn't know. It was my first day. I'd never eaten raw tuna in my life. I'd never eaten fresh tuna in my life. I'd only ever had canned tuna. And it was eye-opening. Um... You know, I spent two years there and it was an interesting two years. I took a lot of drugs um, over that two-year period. So a lot of it was actually blurry. And, but the training was amazing and it was ingrained. They ingrained the training into you. you know, and when I was as an apprentice there, I mean, some, some weeks I'd do 90 hours. Um, I wouldn't go home. I'd just go out and party and come back to work um, and do it all over again. And, you know, it got to a point where I think it was a Sunday and I remember getting to work and then have no memory of the whole day until three o'clock. And I was like, well, what have, what have I done for the last eight hours, nine hours of work? And that's when it really hit me going, well, I better, better lay off the drugs a little bit. Um, and that gave me, I mean, peer gave me the passion for seafood. And I love it. I still love it to this day. When you realised that there was a, an issue uh, with, with drug taking, what, what sort of steps did you take to walk through the door and change things? Oh, that didn't happen until I was 30. So, you know, that was from 17 when I started a peer. So that was th- it's, it was a 13-year ride. Um, I've done two stints in rehab at South Pacific Private, which I think is a, has been amazing and, and is an amazing program. And it really teaches you, uh, really teaches you to look into yourself. And I have the problem with, you know, the word addiction. I don't believe in, in, in addiction. I believe addictions are a symptom of an underlying issue. And unless you deal with the underlying issue, those addictions will keep continuing. And whether you swap those addictions from drug to alcohol to work to sex, whatever the addiction is to overeating. Whatever that addiction is, unless you're dealing with the underlying issue, 
then those addictions will keep coming back. So I find it when people go, oh, you, you know, that's an addict or he's an addict or you're an addict, addict. And I find it really hard to, to stomach that because once I dealt with the underlying issue, my underlying, underlying issue was I would suppress all my emotions. I wouldn't want to deal with them. And the easiest thing is to take drugs, drink, work 100 hours a week. So South Pacific was amazing and it taught me really to look in and go, right, you know, maybe I do have some hung up issues of my parents separating as a kid and having a bit, being abandoned as a child. And, and you know, it, it's, it wasn't really till my second stint in 2018 that I went in there that I really was like, right, I need to make some changes. And that's when I decided to sell Bondi's Best because where the kitchen used to be a safe place, it then became an unsafe place and it wasn't working for me anymore. And it, yeah, would, would make me want to drink and take drugs and, and the chaos that a kitchen provided wasn't working anymore. And so I really needed to sit down and go, right, I need to change some things. And, you know, selling the businesses, everyone thought I was crazy. But for me, it was the right time. And for me, it was something I needed to do for myself. Um, and in hindsight, you know, it was perfect timing for the, the rest of the world. No one knew coronavirus was going to happen and the, the whole world would implode and restaurants would be closed down and half the hospitality staff would be out of work half, you know, a quarter of the hospitality staff would leave. You know, there's a lot of chefs that have left the industry. There's a lot of wait staff that have left the industry. How did you navigate working uh, with your drug and alcohol issues in kitchens during your 20s and early 30s? I was good at hiding things, you know, and, and you know, I drank a lot of vodka and I think that comes most likely from my influence at Pier and, and Fish Face. Um being that double-edged sword and it's like no one would know I was half a bottle of vodka through like they wouldn't know and for me I used to go out and give shots of vodka to, to the customers and they wouldn't know that I was already bottled through so I was very good at hiding things no one really knew how bad I was I mean I probably bought the lady who owns the bottle shop next door a new house because I used to buy eight to ten bottles of vodka a week um, as well as doing cocaine and, and other drugs. It was, you know, there was no one that I was, I, there was no one to answer to but myself. And I feel like as a teenager, I didn't really have teenage years. I was always really responsible. I grew up really quickly. And my 20s were kind of like my teenage years. But I had money. And I didn't have anyone to answer to. So, you know, one of the, one of the stints in rehab, they make you write up on a, on a whiteboard of, you know, what you probably consumed over the you know, last however many years. And I just did six years. And just what I consumed in my restaurant solely on the premise of my restaurant and it was close to half a million dollars like it was frightful 
And I, I mean, do I regret it? No. Did I have fun? Yes. Would I change things? Probably. You know, I don't. Making decisions when you're influenced on drugs and alcohol is not the right thing to do. Um, you know, you, to make clear decisions in business and in your personal life for relationships, it's really important. You make those decisions from a place of peace and, and with clarity. And you can't have peace and clarity when you've been awake for two days. You drank half a bottle of vodka. You mentioned your second... Um time in rehab in 2018 really changed things for you what what sort of impact did that change have on you and what sort of positives came from walking through that door and moving away from that life that you were that was sort of uh, ruining you really came back to making sure I put my needs first and when you're a chef and you run restaurants like you put everyone else needs first that plate has to be perfect you know, and even though it was just a fish and chip shop, I, you know, we got 13, 13 and a half and the good food guide. But the pressure of putting everyone else's needs first before your own. And so the second time I just realised, I've got to start looking at my own happiness. And what is not, and this restaurant is not serving me anymore. And the business, the relationship I had with the business wasn't, was not serving me anymore. And so I came out and I was just like, it's time to sell. It's time to have a break and it's time to reflect and, you know, now's the time. And that's where, you know, I'm I'm grateful. Because I don't know what would have happened if I had to navigate the last two and a half, three years through the coronavirus with two restaurants on board. I'd hate to think how I could have dealt with it or would have dealt with it. What sort of positives um, are in your life now as a result of this change and, and how different are you? Oh, I've had one drink this year and that was on my birthday. I had a really nice whiskey and a cigar. Um, but the positives, like I have an amazing partner, you know, who I connect emotionally with on a day-to-day basis, which is something I, I, I've never really had before. I mean, to connect to myself emotionally, I connect with myself on emotions and, and that enables me to connect to others on it with emotions and you know she's amazing she's a great rock um, supportive and I'm super lucky to have her in my life you know with my kids I've got a better relationship with them um, and, and connecting with them emotion with emotion and teaching them about emotions and one thing you know South Pacific taught me was, you know, how we teach our children emotions. You know, we all grew up, we're men, we all grew up and, you know, you fall over, it's like, don't cry. But you're teaching your children to suppress their emotions. And it's really unhealthy when it gets later on in life. And so being able to develop that emotional relationship with the children is a bonus. And I would never have been able to do it without the support of you know, going to rehab. Amongst this lifestyle that you, you had for quite a long time, um, you built a, a love for and a name for amazing seafood and the ability to um, hear what on the plate. And tell us about 
your approach to cooking seafood and what it is that you love about it so much? It's delicate. It's unforgiving. And when you cook a perfect piece of fish, it's one of the best things on earth. Um, you know, and I, I put that down to Stephen Hodges, you know, his teaching for me of how to cook seafood and how to, you know, care for it, you know, from dry scale to, you know, storing the special fish, fish fridge. Um, you know, there's nothing better than eating raw, perfect, aged fish, you know, or cooking it perfectly, you know, where it just sets, where the protein sets in the middle. And I had a discussion with someone yesterday, my therapist actually, and uh, I was explaining, like, you know, all proteins should be allowed to rest after cooking, whether it be beef, seafood, or chicken. And he was surprised by this fact, but, you know, seafood, when you cook and fill it, you know, the residual heat keeps cooking. So to be able to pull that fish off at the right time, allow that to sit and rest, so the residual heat just sets the protein and it's one of the best joys of life. Best seafood uh, was more than a fish and chipper um, and was very, very popular. What were some of the great dishes um, that you're really proud of from, from that period of your life? Oh, I mean, one comes to mind of the Chatham Island blue-eye blue cod that we got out of New Zealand. We used to just serve with a, a spicy miso soup. It was phenomenal. Um, and that was a relationship that I, you know, had with the, the fishermen from Chatham Island. Um, and, you know, I'm looking forward to building those relationships again moving forward for Besto because, you know, seafood is about building relationships. There's very little good seafood that comes through the market and you need to build, build those relationships. And, you know, I had a lot of good relationships with suppliers, um, John Sussman being one of them, you know him very well. Um, and, you know, sourcing the best seafood that you can get and it all comes down to having relationships. Tell us about those connections and, and why they're so important. Do you have any experiences of um, being on to, some um, different boats or with fish, different fisheries to, that have sort of made an impact on your use of that seafood? Yeah, well, I actually hate fishing and I get seasick. <laughs> and I get seasick. But give me, a, give me a scuba dive, swim with them all day. I would rather someone bring me the fish in. Um, I don't have enough patience for fishing, but I understand, you know, the process and what it takes to, you know, to catch a fish and kill it properly and store it properly. And, you know, when it, like in, in the Icky Jim message, you know, system is important to spike the fish through the brain. And, and I relate this you know, when someone goes, why do you spike it through the brain? I'm like, you want to kill it as soon as, as quickly as possible so it has the least amount of stress. And I put it, and I relate it to dragging a cow behind a, a car for three hours, you know, and why, uh, why um, net caught and, and hauling fish should be banned. Um, so it's, it's really important that we look after our fisheries, we look after the fishermen that are doing a good job, 
and you know we protect Australian waters and New Zealand waters. A lot of good seafood comes out of New Zealand, and they do an amazing job down there. And I think Australia has to pull up, pull its pull its game, and catch up to how good New Zealand do on a sustainability level, on a quota level, on a research level as well. You mentioned that you uh, sold your restaurants before the pandemic, and this time you've felt um, very blessed to um, not have them during uh, bushfires and floods and the and the pandemic. What sort of impact has stepping away from the industry had on um, on your cooking and the way that you um, look at your career? I now do it from what I want to do, not from a necessity. And so, you know, this new project is, I want to do it. You know, it's a passion. It's, it's not for the money. It's not to work in it six days a week. It's just something I want to do and that I'm going to find a lot of enjoyment out of. And it comes down to the joy and passion that's, that's going to come from it. And so understanding, you know, I, I got kicked out of school as a 15-year-old, as a lot of chefs did. And, you know, working in the kitchen, that was more need. I needed to. I needed to get a job. I needed to work. I needed to support myself. I moved out of home, you know, from the family home. When I was, I think, 16, 17. And, and so I always needed to work. And so this project, you know, over the last three years, it's like the next thing I do, it's going to be out of a want. I want to do this and I don't need to do this. And I'm going to have a lot of joy from, this, from the next project that I do. And so keeping it small and intimate is important, especially for staffing. So my business partners... Uh, ex-staff members of Bondi's Best and we don't need to find any other staff and moving forward like Australia's going to have a big hospitality shortage of staff and it scares me like it, it scares me and it worries for my friends in the industry and how much pressure it's going to put on them working more hours understanding you know understanding what I've been through in the past and I just go, where's the support going to come from? And possibly how many chefs are we going to lose? Both from the kitchen and most likely from suicide. Like, it, it, it worries me. It really does. What are some of your favourite memories of Bondi's Best? Um, favourite memories? Stripping down on my board shorts and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a 40-degree day and running down to the beach is one of the best things. I, I think New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, it was a New Year's Day, it was 40 degrees, and I called my neighbour down at nine o'clock and I said, can you look after the restaurant? We're closed, just sit here and have a beer. And all the staff, we went down and had a swim. You know, we'd had a record day, it was 40 degrees. We just all went down and had a swim. Um, the community in Bondi, we had a very loyal very loyal following and the community was always strong and it was hard for me to go back to Bondi for 12 months almost two years I felt a lot of shame for selling and every time I every time I went back every time I went back they'd go you know they've ruined your place 
And I wouldn't want to answer it. I wouldn't want to answer the questions. And I felt shame for selling. And it took me a while to, to release that shame and accept that I'd sold and I'd moved on. Tell us about Besto and, and where did the idea come from and, and when did you find the location that was right for this idea? I think sitting down to an omakase anywhere in the world is a special experience. Whether you're in Japan, you know, New York, Sydney, I think allowing the chef to dictate the menu on what he believes is the best produce of that day is an experience that I think everyone should have once in their life. And a lot of omakasis have opened up over the last 12 months. And I had an eye on this location two and a half years ago. And because of the pandemic, they delayed it a little bit. Um, but I think being in the city is a great spot. You know, a lot of business lunches, a lot of business deals happened over you know, Omakase restaurants or in Omakase restaurants. And it's an experience. You know, we've got a Japanese garden. We've built in a Japanese garden in there that you walk through to get to the dining room. And it's just, you know, I take it as you're, you're being invited in someone's house. And it's a 12-seat dining room. Yeah. So I, I'm super excited, especially just to sit and eat as a customer as well. You know, and I don't have to wait eight months to get into it. Um, you know, I can go when I want and guide the chef and guide the manager on moving the business in the right direction. Has there been an omakase experience that's been a real highlight for you um, that's inspired this project? I was in Japan last year, just before the pandemic hit in, in, in February, um, when the virus was on the boat, some princess boat off, the, off, the, off Japan. And we had, a, me and my partner had a couple of good omakase experience over there. And, and they were very traditional, um, but they were amazing. You know, one of the chefs took me through the Japanese fish markets, the new one, um, one morning at 5 a.m. and took me through to all his suppliers. And, and it's just the whole process of, you know, you go down to the markets every morning and you go find the best piece of fish that you can for that day and the best octopus and the best roe and, and best umi and... And you go back and you carefully prepare it. And those six lucky punters at night time are the ones that get to benefit for, you know, all that hard work that's put it, been put in through that day. You mentioned your concerns about staffing as we move forward and society opens up again, but do you think there's some positives to come out of this adversity that can create positive change for the industry? I find it really hard at the moment to see any positive, positive change you know, wages need to go up. Staff, chefs need to get paid more. They need to get treated better. Wait staff need to get paid more and treated better, especially in Sydney. Melbourne's a little bit different. Um, but with these increased wages, you know, the, the cost of the food is going to go up. So the cost of living in Sydney has, has increased dramatically over the last three to five years. And I don't think that we've seen that on the restaurant on a plate and I feel 
you know, over the next two years, we're going to see a big increase on food, on the plate of food. And I think it needs to. Um, but within that, you know, rents are high, overheads are high. So the business, I, I think the restaurant and hospitality industry has to go through a change. And you either, you either move and change with it or you die. And the smaller size restaurants is a good business model. You know, for me, I used to work out my wages on 25 to 30%. This model will allow my wages to be, you know, 15%. And, you know, I can't see. I mean, I look around Sydney everywhere and all these restaurants that are closed, they're never going to reopen. And I just can't see how new hospitality venues are going to go in there. It's it's frightening. And just the quality of food, you know, the chefs that work, that that are going to be working 80 hours a week because there's no one else to cover them. Like, it's extremely worrying. It's really important that we restart and we open our borders. We get the backpackers in, we get the tourists in, the tourist visas, the holiday visas, and the tourists. We need to restart the hospitality. For someone who's uh, walked through the door and um, got on top of uh, issues with alcohol and and drugs, which are a common issue in the industry, uh, what sort of advice do you have for those um, looking to step through that door and and have some more clarity in their life? There's never a right time to do it, unless it's now. And the sooner, you know, the sooner you take that step and accept that you have some underlying issues that haven't, you know, that you haven't worked through um, and seek help, seek advice. You know, I'm quite open and I always have been quite open with my struggles. Um, and I often receive phone calls from people I've never met before, but actually that have seen my Instagram or seen my Facebook Um, and yeah, there's no better time than now. As we head towards summer, can you think of a seafood dish that you're looking forward to cooking and eating? To be honest, I had a cracking meal from Josh Nyland at Charcoal Fish the other day. So, um, I've still got that in my memory, in my, in, in my taste buds. Um, yeah, look, his fish and chips are amazing. And I picked up some Murray cod off the charcoals and, I had a yellow curry sauce at home that I that I made. So it was a yellow curry using his his fish. Um, but yeah, just fish and chips from him. Like I miss I miss fish and chips. You know, and it's really hard to get good fish and chips in Sydney, and it has been for 15 years, which is one of the reasons why Bondi's Best was so successful. Um, yeah, I'm happy he's opened down the road from me. I can walk there in two minutes. Well, Besto will open soon, and it's the first time in your career that you're opening something that you want to uh, rather than out of necessity. Um, what are you looking forward to when the doors open? Sitting down as a patron. Sitting, sitting down in a restaurant that I've built and designed and with business partners, but not be heavily involved in the kitchen. So taking a step back from the chef's side and more sitting down as a consultant and, and restaurateur 
and yeah, sitting down and enjoying that experience, um, and being able to offer that experience to others. How long until uh, the doors open? What's what's the plan? I know there's still lockdown in Sydney, but are you ready to go when the lockdown lifts? Yeah, we should be open by middle of November, end of November. There was a lot of number crunching when I was negotiating the lease. Um, I was lucky that AMP were very slow in the beginning, and by the time they issued me the lease, we were in lockdown, so we had to go back and renegotiate. But there was a lot of number crunching and looking at you know, our vaccine rates every day. And I'd look at it going, oh, okay. And I had a buddy that would, you know, guess as well. And, and so we, I estimated that we'd be 80% vaccinated by the end of October. So I'm grateful I'm good with numbers and, and we've all jumped on board and got vaccinated. So we should be open by middle of November. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people very much looking forward to it, Joel, and we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds to hear just a little bit of your story. No doubt we'll catch up again soon. Please keep in touch. Good luck, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.